Chapter Five, Book Three of Rookwood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Paul Curran. Rookwood by William Harrison Ainsworth. Book Three, Chapter Five: The Inauguration. Beggar. Concert, sir. We have musicians, too, among us. True, merry beggars, indeed, that, being within the reach of the lash for singing libelous songs at London, were fain to fly into one cover, and here they sing all our poets' ditties. They can sing anything, most tunably, sir. But psalms. What they may do hereafter, under a triple tree, is much expected, but they live very civilly and genteelly among us. Spring but what is here? That solemn old fellow, that neither speaks of himself, or any for him? Beggar. Oh, sir, the rarest man of all! He is a prophet. See how he holds up his prognosticating nose. He is divining now. Spring. How? A prophet? Beggar. Yes, sir, a cunning man, and a fortune-teller, a very ancient stroller all the world over, and has travelled with gypsies, and is a patrico. THE MERRY BEGGARS In consequence of some few words which the sexton let fall in the presence of the attendants during breakfast, more perhaps by design than accident, it was speedily rumoured throughout the camp that the redoubted Richard Turpin was for the time its inmate. This intelligence produced some such sensation as is experienced by the inhabitants of a petty town on the sudden arrival of a prince of the blood a commander-in-chief, or other illustrious and distinguished personage, whose fame has been vaunted abroad amongst his fellow-men by rumour and her thousand tongues, and who, like our highwayman, has rendered himself sufficiently notorious to be an object of admiration and emulation amongst his contemporaries. All started up at the news. The upright man, the chief of the crew, arose from his chair, donned his gown of state, a very ancient brocade dressing-gown filched, most probably, from the wardrobe of some strolling player, grasped his baton of office, a stout oaken truncheon, and sallied forth. The ruffler, who found his representative in a very magnificently equipped and by no means ill-favoured knave, whose chin was decorated with a beard as lengthy and black as Sultan Mahmoud's, together with the dexterous hooker, issued forth from the hovel which they termed their boozing ken, eager to catch a glimpse of the prince of the high Toby-Glokes. The limping palliard tore the bandages from his mock wounds, shouldered his crutch, and trudged hastily after them. The whip-jack unbuckled his strap, threw away his timber-leg, and leapt exulting like the bounding row. With such a sail in sight, he said, he must heave too like the rest. The dummerar, whose tongue had been cut out by the Algerines, suddenly found the use of it, and made the welkin ring with his shouts. Wonderful were the miracles Dick's advent wrought. The lame suddenly became active, the blind saw, the dumb spoke, nay, if truth must be told, absolutely gave utterance to the most vernacular execrations. Morts, autumn morts, walking morts, dells, doxies, kinching morts, and their coes, with all the shades and grades of the canting crew were assembled. There were, 
to use the words of Brome, stark, errant, downright beggars, ay, without equivocation, statute beggars, couchant and passant, gardant, rampant beggars, current and vagrant, stockant, whippant beggars. Each sunburnt varlet started from his shed. Each dusky dame with her brown, half-naked urchins followed at his heels. Each ripe young maiden with the glossy eye lingered but to sleek her raven tresses and to arrange her straw bonnet, and then overtook the others. Each wrinkled bell-dam hobbled as quickly after her stiffened joints would permit, while the ancient Patrico, the priest of the crew, who joined the couples together by the hedge-side with the nice custom of dead horse between, brought up the rear, all bent on one grand object, that of having a peep at the foremost man of all this prigging world. Dick Turpin, at the period of which we treat, was in the zenith of his reputation. His deeds were full-blown, his exploits were in every man's mouth, and a heavy price was set upon his head. That he should show himself thus openly, where he might be so easily betrayed, excited no little surprise amongst the craftiest of the crew, and augured an excess of temerity on his part. Rash daring was the main feature of Turpin's character. Like our great Nelson, he knew fear only by name, and when he thus trusted himself in the hands of strangers, confident in himself and in his own resources, he felt perfectly easy as to the result. He relied also in the continuance of his good fortune, which had as yet never deserted him. Possessed of the belief that his hour was not yet come, he cared little or nothing for any risk he might incur, and though he might, undoubtedly, have some presentiment of the probable termination of his career, he never suffered it to militate against his present enjoyment, which proved that he was no despicable philosopher. Turpin was the ultimus Romanorum, the last of a race, which, we were almost about to say we regret, is now altogether extinct. Several successes he had, it is true, but no name worthy to be recorded after his own, with him expired the chivalrous spirit which animated successively the bosoms of so many knights of the road. With him died away that passionate love of enterprise, that high spirit of devotion to the fair sex, which was first breathed upon the highway by the gay gallant Claude Duval, the Bayard of the road. La filou sans peur et sans reproche, but which was extinguished at last by the cord that tied the heroic Turpin to the remorseless tree. It were a subject well worthy of inquiry to trace this decline and fall of the empire of the Toby men to its remoter causes, to ascertain the why and the wherefore that with so many half-pay captains, so many poor curates, so many lieutenants of both services, without hopes of promotion, so many penny-aligners and fashionable novelists, so many damned dramatists and damning critics, so many Edinburgh and quarterly reviews, so many detrimental brothers and younger sons, when there are horses to be hired, pistols to be borrowed, purses to be taken, and males are as plentiful as partridges, it were worth serious investigation, we repeat, to ascertain why, with the best material imaginable for a new race of highwaymen, we have none, not even an amateur. Why do not some of these choice spirits quit the salons of Pall Mall and take to the road? The air of the heath is more bracing and wholesome, we should conceive, than any of hell, whatever, and the chances of success incomparably greater. 
We throw out this hint without a doubt of seeing it followed up. Probably the solution of our inquiry may be that the supply is greater than the demand, that, in the present state of things, embryo highwaymen may be more abundant than purses. And then have we not the horse patrol? With such an admirably organised system of conservation, it is vain to anticipate a change. The highwaymen, we fear, like their Irish brothers, the Rapparees, went out with the Tories. They were averse to reform and eschewed emancipation. Lest anyone should think we have overrated the pleasures of the highwayman's existence, they shall hear what the right villainous Jack Hall, a celebrated Tobyman of his day, has got to say on the subject. His life, the highwayman's, has, generally, the most mirth and the least care in it of any man's breathing, and all he deals for is clear profit. He has that point of good conscience, that he always sells as he buys a good pennyworth, which is something rare, since he trades with so small a stock. The fence and he are like the devil and the doctor. They live by one another, and, like traitors, tis best to keep each other's counsel. He has his point of honesty, that he never robs the house he frequents. Turpin had the same scruples respecting the hall of Rookwood in Sir Piers's lifetime, and perhaps pays his debts better than some others, for he holds it below the dignity of his employment to commit so ungenteel a crime as insolvency, and loves to pay nobly. He has another quality, not much amiss, that he takes no more than he has occasion for. Jack, we think, was a little mistaken here, which he verifies this way. He craves no more while that lasts. He's a less nuisance in a commonwealth than a miser, because the money he engrosses all circulates again, which the other hoards as though twere only to be found again at the day of judgment. He is the tithe-pig of the family, which the gallows, instead of the parson, claims as its due. He has reason enough to be bold in his undertakings, for, though all the world threaten him, he stands in fear of but one man in it, and that's the hangman and with him too he is generally in fee. However, I cannot confirm he's so valiant that he dares look at any man in the face, for in that point he is now and then a little modest. Newgate may be said to be his country house, where he frequently lives so many months in the year, and he is not so much concerned to be carried thither for a small matter, if twere only for the benefit of renewing his acquaintance there. He holds a petty larceny as light as a nun does auricular confession, though the priest has a more compassionate character than the hangman. Every man in this community is esteemed according to his particular quality, of which there are several degrees, though it is contrary often to public government. For here a man shall be valued purely for his merit, and rise by it too, though it be put to a halter, in which there is a great deal of glory in dying like a hero, and making a decent figure in the cart to the last two staves of the fifty-first psalm. This, we repeat, is the plain statement of a practical man, and again we throw out the hint for adoption. All we regret is that we are now degenerated from the grand Toby man to the cracksman and the sneak, about whom there are no redeeming features. How much lower the next generation of thieves will dive it boots not to conjecture. Itas parentum pejor avis tulit, nos nequiores mox daturos, progeniem vitiosiorem. 
Cervantes laughed Spain's chivalry away, sang Byron, and if Gay did not extinguish the failing flame of our knight errantry, unlike the robbers of Schiller, which is said to have inflamed the Saxon youth with an irrepressible mania for brigandage, the beggar's opera helped not to fan the dying fire. That laugh was fatal, as laughs generally are. Macheath gave the highwayman his coup de grace. The last of this race, for we must persist in maintaining that he was the last, Turpin, like the setting sun, threw up some parting rays of glory, and tinged the far highways with a lustre that may yet be traced like a cloud of dust raised by his horse's retreating heels. Unequalled in the command of his steed, the most singular feat that the whole race of the annals of horsemanship has yet to record, and of which we may have more to say hereafter, was achieved by him. So perfect was his jockeyship, so clever his management of the animal he mounted, so intimately acquainted was he with every crossroad in the neighbourhood of the metropolis, a book of which he constructed and carried constantly about his person, as well as with many other parts of England, particularly the counties of Chester, York, and Lancaster, that he outstripped every pursuer, and baffled all attempts at capture. His reckless daring, his restless rapidity, for so suddenly did he change his ground and renew his attacks in other quarters that he seemed to be endowed with ubiquity, his bravery, his resolution, and above all, his generosity, won for him a high reputation amongst his compatriots, and even elicited applauses from those upon whom he levied his contributions. Beyond dispute, he ruled as master of the road. His hands were, as yet, unstained with blood. He was ever prompt to check the disposition to outrage, and to prevent, as much as lay in his power, the commission of violence by his associates. Of late, since he had possessed himself of his favourite mare, Black Bess, his robberies had been perpetrated with a suddenness of succession, and at distances so apparently impracticable that the idea of all having been executed by one man was rejected as an impossibility and the only way of reconciling the description of the horse and rider which tallied in each instance was the supposition that these attacks were performed by confederates similarly mounted and similarly accoutred there was in all this as much of the fema sacra femes as of the ori of the hungering after distinction as well as of the appetite of gain enamoured of his vocation Turpin delighted to hear himself designated as the flying highwayman, and it was with rapturous triumph that he found his single-handed feats attributed to a band of marauders. But this state of things could not long endure. His secret was blown, the vigilance of the police was aroused, he was tracked to his haunts, and, after a number of hair-bred scapes, which he only effected by miracle or by the aid of his wonder-working mare, he reluctantly quitted the heathy hills of Bagshot, the pampas plains of Hounslow, over which, like an archetype of the galloping Sir Francis Head, he had so often scoured, the gorsy commons of Highgate, Hampstead, and Finchley, the marshy fields of Battersea, almost all of which he had been known to visit in a single night, and leaving these beaten tracks to the occupation of younger and less practised hands, he bequeathed to them, at the same time, his own reversionary interest in the gibbets thereupon erected, and betook himself to the country. After a journey of more or less success, our adventurer found himself at Rookwood, 
whither he had been invited after a grand field-day by its hospitable and by no means inquisitive owner. Breach of faith and good fellowship formed no part of Turpin's character. He had his lights as well as his shades, and as long as Sir Piers lived, his purse and coffers would have been free from molestation, except, so far, Dick said, as a cog or two of dice went, my dice, you know, are lungs for odd and even, a bale of barred sink juices, a pattern of which he always carried with him. Beyond this, excepting a take-in at a steeplechase, Rookwood Church being the mark, a do at a leap or some such trifle, to which the most scrupulous could not raise an objection, Dick was all fair and above board. But when poor Sir Piers had put on his wooden surtout, to use Dick's own expressive metaphor, his conscientious scruples evaporated into thin air. Lady Rookwood was nothing to him. There was excellent booty to be appropriated. The wise convey it call. He began to look about for hands, and having accidentally encountered his old comrades, Rust and Wilder, they were let into the business, which was imperfectly accomplished in the manner heretofore described. To return from this digression, when Turpin presented himself at the threshold of the door, on his way to inquire after his mare, to his astonishment he found it closely invested. A cheering shout from the tawny throng, succeeded by a general clapping of hands, and attended by a buzzing susurration of applause, such as welcomes the entrance of a popular actor upon the stage, greeted the appearance of the highwayman. At the first sight of the crowd he was a little startled, and involuntarily sought for his pistols, but the demonstrations of admiration were too unequivocal to be for a moment mistaken. His hand was drawn from his pocket to raise his hat from his brow. Thunders of applause. Turpin's external man, we have before said, was singularly prepossessing. It was especially so in the eyes of the sex. Fair, we certainly cannot say upon the present occasion, amongst whom not a single dissentient voice was to be heard. All concurred in thinking him a fine fellow, could plainly read his high courage in his bearing, his good breeding in his debonair deportment, and his manly beauty in his extravagant red whiskers. Dick saw the effect that he produced. He was at home in a moment. Your true highwayman has ever a passion for effect. This does not desert him at the gallows. It rises superior to death itself, and has been known to influence the manner of his dangling from the gibbet. To hear someone cry, There goes a proper handsome man, saith our previously quoted authority, Jack Hall, somewhat ameliorates the terrible thoughts of the meagre tyrant death, and to go in a dirty shirt were enough to save the hangman a labour, and make a man die with grief and shame at being in that deplorable condition. With gracious smile of condescension, like a popular orator, with a look of blarney like that of O'Connell, and of assurance like that of Hume, he surveyed the male portion of the spectators, tipped a knowing wink at the prettiest brunettes he could select, and finally cut a sort of fling with his well-booted legs that brought down another appeal of rapturous applause. "'Erank, scamp!' cried the upright man, and this exclamation however equivocal it may sound, was intended on his part to be highly complimentary. "'I believe ye!' returned the ruffler, stroking his chin, 
One may see he's no half swell by the care with which he cultivates the best gifts of nature, his whiskers. He's a rank nib. Togged out to the ruffian, no doubt, said the palliard, who was incomparably the shabbiest rascal in the corps. Though a needy misler myself, I likes to see a corvus well-dressed. Just twig his swell kickses and pipes. If they ain't the thing, I'm done. Lame Larry can't dance nor better he. No, nor Jerry Juniper neither. I'm dumbfounded, roared the dummerar. If he can't pat a Romany as vell as the best on us, he looks like a rumman. And a rumman, un he be, take my word for it, returned the whipjack, or sham sailor. Look at his rigging, see how he flashes his sticks. Those are the tools to rake a three-decker. He's as clever a craft as I've seen this many a day, or I'm no judge. The women were equally enchanted, equally equivalent in the expression of their admiration. What ogles! cried a mort. What pins! said an autumn mort, or married woman. Sharp as needles! said a dark-eyed dell, who had encountered one of the free and frolicsome glances which our highwaymen distributed so liberally among the petticoats. It was at this crisis Dick took off his hat. Caesar betrayed his baldness. "'A thousand pities!' cried the men, compassionating his thinly covered skull, and twisting their own ringlets, glossy and luxuriant, though unconscious of Macassar, a thousand pities that so fine a fellow should have a sconce like a coconut. But then he's red whiskers, rejoined the women, tired of the uniformity of thick black heads of hair. What a warmth of colouring they impart to his face, and then only to look how beautifully bushy they make his cheeks appear. La Fauchuse and the court of the Queen of Navarre were not more smitten with the Sir de Quoi's jelly pair of whiskers. The hawk's eye of Turpin ranged over the whole assemblage. Amidst that dark throng of dark faces there was not one familiar to him. Before him stood the upright man, Zoroaster, so was he called, a sturdy, stalwart rogue, whose superior strength and stature, as has not been unfrequently been the case, in the infancy of governments that have arisen to more importance than is likely to be the case with that of lesser Egypt, had been the means of his elevation to his pregnant dignified position. Zoroaster literally fought his way upwards, and had at first to maintain his situation by the strong arm, but he now was enabled to repose upon his hard-won laurels, to smoke the calumet of peace, and quaff his tipple with impunity. For one of gypsy blood he presented an unusually jovial, liquor-loving countenance. His eye was mirthful, his lip moist, as if from oft potations, his cheek mellow as an Orleans plum, which fruit in colour and texture it mightily resembled. Strange to say, also, for one of that lithe race, his person was heavy and habitudinous, the consequence, no doubt, of habitual intemperance. Like Crib, he waxed obese upon the championship. There was a kind of mock state in his carriage, as he placed himself before Turpin, and with his left hand twisted up the tail of his dressing-gown, while the right thrust his truncheon into his hip, which was infinitely diverting to the highwayman. Turpin's attention, however, was chiefly directed towards his neighbour, the ruffler, 
in whom he recognised a famous impostor of the day, with whose history he was sufficiently well acquainted to be able at once to identify the individual. We have before stated that a magnificent coal-black beard decorated the chin of this worthy, but this was not all. His costume was in perfect keeping with his beard, and consisted of a very theatrical-looking tunic, upon the breast of which was embroidered, in golden wire, the Maltese cross, while over his shoulders were thrown the folds of an ample cloak of Tyrian hue. To his side was girt a long and doughty sword, which he termed, in his knightly phrase, Excalibur, and upon his profuse hair rested a hat as broad in the brim as a Spanish sombrero. Exaggerated as this description may appear, we can assure our readers that it is not overdrawn, and that a counterpart of the sketch we have given of the ruffler certainly strutted his hour upon the stage of human life, and that the very ancient and discriminating city of Canterbury, to which be all honour, was his theatre of action. His history is so far curious that it exemplifies more strongly than a thousand discourses could do how prone we are to be governed by appearances, and how easily we may be made the dupes of a plausible impostor. Be it remembered, however, that we treat of the eighteenth century, before the march of intellect had commenced, we are much too knowing to be similarly practised upon in these enlightened times. But we will let the Knight of Malta, for such was the title assumed by the Ruffler, tell his own story in his own way hereafter, contenting ourselves with the moral precepts we have already deduced from it. Next to the Knight of Malta stood the Whipjack, habited in his sailor-gear, striped shirt and dirty canvas trousers, and adjoining him was the palliard, a loathsome tatterdemillion, in his dress one heap of rags, and his discoloured skin one mass of artificial leprosy and imposthumes. As Turpin's eye shifted from one to another of these figures, he chanced upon an individual who had been long endeavouring to arrest his attention. This personage, was completely in the background. All that Dick could discern of him was a brown, curly head of hair, carelessly arranged in the modern mode, a handsome, impudent, sun-freckled face with one eye closed, and the other occupied by a broken bottle-neck, through which, as a substitute for a lorgnette, the individual reconnoitred him. A cocked hat was placed in a very degardé manner under his arm, and he held an ebony cane in his hand, very much in the style of a fashionable, as the French have it, of the present day. This glimpse was sufficient to satisfy Turpin. He recognised in this whimsical personage an acquaintance. Jerry Juniper was what the classical Captain Gross would designate a gentleman with three outs, and although he was not entirely without wit, nor his associates avouched, without money, nor, certainly, in his own opinion, had that been asked, without manners, yet was he assuredly without shoes, without stockings, without shirt. This latter deficiency was made up by a voluminous cravat, tied with proportionately large bows, a jaunty pair of yellow breeches, somewhat faded, a waistcoat of silver brocade, richly embroidered, somewhat tarnished and lacklustre, a murray-coloured velvet coat, somewhat chafed, completed the costume of this beggar Brummel, this mendicant macaroni. 
Jerry Juniper was a character well known at the time, as a constant frequenter of all races, fairs, regattas, ship launches, bull baits, and prize fights, all of which he attended, and to which he transported himself with an expedition little less remarkable than that of Turpin. You met him at Epsom, at Ascot, at Newmarket, at Doncaster, at the Roday of Chester, at the Curragh of Kildare. The most remote, as well as the most adjacent meeting, attracted him. The cockpit was his constant haunt, and in more senses than one was he a leg. No opera dancer could be more agile, more nimble, scarcely indeed more graceful than was Jerry, with his shoeless and stockingless feet, and the manner in which he executed a pirouette or a par before a line of carriages seldom failed to procure him golden opinions from all sorts of dames. With the ladies, it must be owned, Jerry was rather upon too easy terms, but then, perhaps, the ladies were upon too easy terms with Jerry, and if a bright-eyed fair one condescended to jest with him, what marvel if he should sometimes slightly transgress the laws of decorum. These aberrations, however, were trifling. Altogether he was so well known, and knew everybody else so well, that he seldom committed himself, and, singular to say, could on occasions even be serious. In addition to his other faculties, no one cut a sly joke, or trolled a merry ditty, better than Jerry. His peculiarities, in short, were on the pleasant side, and he was a general favourite in consequence. No sooner did Jerry perceive that he was recognised than, after kissing his hand with the air of a petty mater to the highwayman, he strove to edge his way through the crowd. All his efforts were fruitless, and, tired of a situation in the rear rank, so inconsistent he conceived with his own importance, he had recourse to an expedient often practised with success in harlequinades, and not unfrequently in real life, where a flying leap is occasionally taken over our heads. He ran back a few yards to give himself an impetus, returned, and, placing his hands upon the shoulders of a stalwart vagabond near to him, threw a somerset upon the broad cap of a palliard, who was so jammed in the midst that he could not have stirred to avoid the shock. Thence, without pausing, he vaulted forwards, and dropped lightly upon the ground in front of Zoroaster, and immediately before the highwayman. Dick laughed immoderately at Jerry's manoeuvre. He shook his old chum cordially by the hand, saying in a whisper, "'What the devil brings you here, Jerry?' "'I might retort and ask you that question, Captain Turpin,' replied Jerry, sotto voce. "'It is odd to see me here, certainly, quite out of my element, lost among this canaly, this canting crew, all the fault of a pair of gypsy eyes, bright as a diamond, dark as a slow, you comprehend, a little afar, ha, <laughs> ha, liable to these things.' "'Bring your ear closer, my boy. Be upon your guard. Keep a sharp lookout. There's a devil of a reward upon your head. I won't answer for all those rascals.' "'Thank you for the hint, Jerry,' replied Dick, in the same tone. "'I calculated my chances pretty nicely when I came here, but if I should perceive any symptoms of foul play, any attempt to snitch on nose amongst this pack of peddlers, I have a friend or two at hand who won't be silent upon the occasion.' "'Rest assured, I shall have my eye upon the gnarling scoundrels. "'I won't be sold for nothing.' "'Trust you for that,' returned Juniper, with a wink. "'Stay,' added he. "'A thought strikes me. "'I have a scheme in petto which may, perhaps, "'afford you some fun, and will, at all events, "'ensure your safety during your stay.' 
"'What is it?' asked Dick. "'Just amuse yourself with a flirtation for a moment or two "'with that pretty damsel who has been casting her ogles at you "'for the last five minutes without success, "'while I affect a masterstroke.' "'And as Turpin, nothing loth, following his advice, "'Jerry addressed himself to Zoroaster. "'After a little conference, accompanied by that worthy and the knight of Malta, "'the trio stepped forward from the line and approached Dick, "'when Juniper, assuming some such altitude as our admirable Jones the comedian is wont to display, "'delivered himself of the following address. "'Turpin listened with the gravity of one of the distinguished persons alluded to, at the commencement of the present chapter, upon their receiving the freedom of the city at the hands of a mayor and corporation. Thus spoke Jerry. Highest of the high tobymen, rummest of rum padders, and most scampish of scampsmen, we, in the name of Barbara, our most tawny queen, in the name of Zoroaster, our upright man, Dimbadamba, or Oli Campoli, by which titles his excellency is distinguished, in our own respective names, as Hypads and Lopads, Rumgills and Queergills, Patricos, Palliards, Priggers, Whipjacks, and Jackmen, from the arch-rogue to the needy Mizzler, fully sensible of the honour you have conferred upon us in gracing Stophole Abbey with your presence." and conceiving that we can in no way evince our sense of your condescension so entirely as by offering you the freedom of our crew together with the privileges of an upright man which you may be aware are considerable and by creating you an honorary member of the vagrant club which we have recently established and in doing so we would fain express the sentiments of gratification and pride which we experience in enrolling amongst our members one who has extended the glory of roguery so widely over the land, and who has kicked up so much dust upon the highways of England, as most effectually to blind the natives, one who is in himself a legion, of highwaymen, awaiting, with respectful deference, the acquiescence of Captain Richard Turpin. We beg to tender him the freedom of our crew." "'Really, gentlemen,' said Turpin, who did not exactly see the drift of this harangue, "'you do me a vast deal of honour. "'I'm quite at a loss to conceive how I can possibly have merited so much attention at your hands, "'and, indeed, I feel myself so unworthy.' "'Here Dick received an expressive wink from Juniper, "'and therefore thought it prudent to alter his expression. "'Could I suppose myself at all deserving of so much distinction?' continued the modest speaker i should at once accept your very obliging offer but none so worthy said the upright man can't hear of a refusal said the knight of malta refusal impossible reiterated juniper no no refusal exclaimed a chorus of voices dick turpin must be one of us he shall be a dimba damba well gentlemen since you are so pressing replied Turpin. "'Even so be it, I will be your dimba-damba.' "'Bravo! Bravo!' cried the mob, not of gentlemen. "'About it, pals, at once,' said the knight of Malta, flourishing Excalibur. "'By St. Thomas a Becket, we'll have as fine a scene as I myself ever furnished to the Canterbury Lieges.' "'About what?' said Dick. "'Your matriculation,' replied Jerry. "'There are certain forms to be gone through, with an oath to be taken, merely a trifle. "'We'll have a jolly booze when all's over. Come bing of ast, my merry pals. "'To the green, to the green! A Turpin! A Turpin! A new brother! "'A Turpin! 
"'A Turpin! A new brother!' echoed the crew. "'I've brought you through,' said Jerry, taking an advantage of the uproar that ensued to whisper to his chum. "'None of them will dare to lift a finger against you now. They are all your friends. For life.' "'Nevertheless,' returned Turpin, "'I shall be glad to know what has become of Bess.' "'If it is your prancer you are wanting,' chirped a fluttering creature, whom Turpin recognised as Luke's groom grasshopper, "'I gave her a fresh loaf and a stoop of stingo as you bade me, "'and there she be, under yon tree, as quiet as a lamb.' "'I see her,' replied Turpin. "'Just tighten her girths, grasshopper, and bring her after me, "'and thou shalt have wherewithal to chirp over thy cups at supper.' Away bounded the elfin dwarf to execute his behest. A loud shout now rent the skies, and presently afterwards was heard the vile scraping of a fiddle, accompanied by the tattoo of a drum. Approaching Turpin, a host of gypsies elevated the highwayman upon their shoulders, and in this way he was carried to the centre of the green, where the long oaken table, which had once served the Franciscans for refection, was now destined for the stage of the pageant. Upon this table three drums were placed, and Turpin was requested to seat himself on the central one. A solemn prelude, more unearthly than the incantation of the Frey Schutz, was played by the orchestra of the band, conducted by the Paganini of the place, who elicited the most marvellous notes from his shell. A couple of shawms emitted sepulchral sounds, while the hollow rolling of a drum broke ever and anon upon the ear. The effect was prodigiously fine. During this overture, the Patrico and the upright man had ascended the rostrum, each taking his place, the former on the right hand of Turpin, the latter upon his left. Below them stood the knight of Malta, with Excalibur drawn in his hand, and gleaming in the sunshine. On the whole, Dick was amused with what he saw, and with the novel situation in which he found himself placed. Around the table were congregated a compact mass of heads, so compact indeed that they looked like one creature, an Argus, with each eye upturned upon the highwayman. The idea struck Turpin that the restless mass of parti-coloured shreds and patches, of vivid hues and varied tintings, singularly, though accidentally, disposed to produce such an effect, resembled an immense tiger-moth, or might it be a turkey carpet spread out upon the grass. The scene was a joyous one. It was a brilliant sunshiny morning, freshened and purified by the storm of the preceding night, the air breathed the balm upon the nerves and senses of the robber. The wooded hills were glittering in light, the brook was flowing swiftly past the edge of the verdant slope, glancing like a wreathed snake in the sunshine, its quiet song lost in the rude harmony of the mummers, as were the thousand twitterings of the rejoicing birds. The rocks bared their bosoms to the sun, or were buried in deep-cast gloom. The shadows of the pillars and arches of the old walls of the priory were projected afar, while the rose-like ramifications of the magnificent marigold window were traced, as if by a pencil, upon the verdant tablet of the sod. The overture was finished. With the appearance of the principal figures in this strange picture the reader is already familiar, it remains only to give him some idea of the patrico imagine then an old superannuated goat reared upon its hind legs and clad in a white sheet disposed in folds like those of a simar about its limbs 
and you will have some idea of Balthazar, the Patrico. This resemblance to the animal before mentioned was rendered the more striking by his huge, hanging, goat-like underlip, his lengthy white beard, and the sort of cap covering his head, which was ornamented with a pair of horns, such as to be seen in Michelangelo's tremendous statue of Moses. Balthazar, besides being the Patrico of the tribe, was its principal professor of divination, and had been the long-tried and faithful minister of Barbara Lovell, from whose secret instructions he was supposed to have derived much of his magical skill. Placing a pair of spectacles upon his prognosticating nose, and unrolling a vellum skin upon which strange characters were written, Balthazar, turning to Turpin, thus commenced in a solemn voice, Thou who wouldst our brother be, see how we shall enter thee, Name the name that thou wilt bear, ere our livery thou wear. I see no reason why I should alter my designation, replied the novitiate, but as popes change their titles on their creation, there can be no objection to a scampsman following so excellent an example. Let me be known as the Nighthawk. The Nighthawk, good, returned the Hierophant, proceeding to register the name upon the parchment, kneel down continued he. After some hesitation, Turpin complied. You must repeat the Salamon, or Oath of Acreed, after my dictation, said the Patrico, and Turpin, signifying his assent by a nod, Balthazar propounded the following abjuration. Oath of the Canting Crew. I, Crank Cuffin, swear to be true to this fraternity, that I will in all obey Rule and order of the lay, never blow the gab or squeak, never snitch to bum or beak, but religiously maintain authority of those who reign over Stophole Abbey Green, be they tawny king or queen, in their cause alone will fight, think what they think, wrong or right, serve them truly, and no other, and be faithful to my brother, suffer none from far or near with their rights to interfere. No strange Abram, ruffler crack, hooker of another pack, rogue or rascal, freighter, marauder, Irish toil or other wanderer, no dimber-damber, angler, dancer, prig of cackler, prig of prancer, no swigman, swaddler, clapper-dudgeon, catch-cloak, kirtle, or curmudgeon, no whip-jack, palliard, patrico, no jack-man, be he high or low, no Dumara, no Romany, no member of the family, no ballad-basket, bouncing buffer, nor any other will I suffer, but staff off now and for ever, all outliers whatsoever, and as I keep to the foregone, so may help me Salomon. So help me Salomon, repeated Turpin, with emphasis. Zoroaster, said the Patrico to the upright man, do thy part of this ceremonial. Zoroaster obeyed, and taking Excalibur from the knight of Malta, bestowed a hearty thwack with the blade upon the shoulders of the kneeling highwayman, assisting him afterwards to arise. The inauguration was complete. Well, exclaimed Dick, I'm glad it's all over. My leg feels a little stiffish. I'm not much given to kneeling. I must dance it off. Saying which, he began to shuffle upon the boards. I'll tell you what, continued he, most reverend Patrico, 
That name Salmon of yours has a cursed long tail. I could scarce swallow it all, and it's strange if it don't give me an indigestion. As to you, sage Zori, from the dexterity with which you flourish your sword, I should say you had practised at court. His Majesty could scarce do the better thing when, slapping some fat alderman upon the shoulder, he bids him arise, Sir Richard. And now, pals, added he, glancing around, as I'm one of you, let's have a booze together, ere I depart, for I don't think my stay will be long in the land of Egypt. This suggestion of Turpin was so entirely consonant to the wishes of the assemblage that it met with universal approbation, and upon a sign from Zoroaster, some of his followers departed in search of supplies for the carousal. Zoroaster leapt from the table, and his example was followed by Turpin, and more leisurely by the Patrico. It was rather early in the day for a drinking bout, but the canting crew were not remarkably particular. The chairs were removed, and the jingling of glasses announced the arrival of the preliminaries of the Matutine Symposium. Poles, canvas, and cords were next brought, and in almost as short a space of time as one scene is substituted for another in a theatrical representation, a tent was erected. Benches, stools, and chairs appeared with equal celerity, and the interior soon presented an appearance like that of a booth at a fair. A keg of brandy was broached, and the health of the new brother quaffed in brimmers. Our highwayman returned thanks. Zoroaster was in the chair, the knight of Malta acting as croupier. A second toast was proposed, the tawny queen. This was drunk with a like enthusiasm, and with a like allowance of the potent spirit. But as bumpers of brandy are not to be repeated with impunity, it became evident to the president of the board that he must not repeat his toasts quite so expeditiously. To create a temporary diversion, therefore, he called for a song. The dulcet tones of the fiddle now broke through the clamour, and, in answer to the call, Jerry Juniper volunteered the following. Jerry Juniper's Chant In a box of the stone jug I was born, of a hempen widow the kid forlorn, fake away! And my father, as I've heard say, fake away! Was a merchant of capers gay, who cut his last fling with great applause, nix my doll, pals, fake away! who cut his last fling with great applause, to the tune of a hearty choke with caper sauce, fake away! He nooks in quad did my schoolmen play, fake away! And put me up to the time of day, until at last there was none so knowing, nix my doll pals, fake away! Until at last there was none so knowing, no such sneaksman or buzz-gloak going, fake away! Fogles and fawnies soon went their way, fake away! To the spout with the sneezers in grand array. No dummy hunter had fox so fly, nix my doll pals, fake away! No dummy hunter had fox so fly, no knuckler so deftly could fake a cly, fake away! No sloured hoaxer my snipes could stay, fake away! non napper reader like me in the lay soon then i mounted in swell street high nix my doll pals fake away soon then i mounted in swell street high and sported my flashiest toggery fake away firmly resolved i would make my hay fake away while mercury's star shed a single ray and ne'er was there seen such a dashing prig nix my doll pals fake away and ne'er was there seen such a dashing prig with my strummel faked in the newest twig 
fake away with my fawned fams and my onions gay fake away my thimble of ridge and my driz camisa all my togs were so nib-like and splash nix my doll pals fake away and all my togs were so nib-like and splash readily the queer screens i then could mash fake away but by nuttiest blowen one fine day fake away to the bleaks did her fancy man betray and thus i was bowled out at last nix my doll pals fake away and thus i was bowled out at last and into the jug for a lag was cast fake away but i slipped my darbies one morning may fake away and gave to the dubsman a holiday and here i am pals merry and free a regular rollicking romany nix my doll pals fake away much laughter and applause rewarded jerry's attempt to please and though the meaning of his chant even with the aid of the numerous notes appended to it may not be quite obvious to our readers we can assure them that it was perfectly intelligible to the canting crew jerry was now entitled to a call and happening at the moment to meet the dark fine eyes of a sentimental gipsy one of that better class of mendicants who wandered about the country with a guitar at his back his election fell upon him the youth without prelude struck up a gipsy serenade merry maid merry maid wilt thou wander with me we will roam through the forest the meadow and lea we will haunt the sunny bowers and when the day begins to flee our couch shall be the ferny brake our canopy the tree merry maid merry maid come wander with me no life like the gypsy so joyous and free merry maid merry maid though a roving life be ours we will laugh away the laughing and quickly fleeting hours our hearts are free as is the free and open sky above and we know what tamer souls know not how lovers ought to love merry maid merry maid come and wander with me no life like the gypsies so joyous and free zoroaster now removed the pipe from his upright lips to intimate his intention of proposing a toast a universal knocking of knuckles by the knucklers was followed by a profound silence the sage spoke the city of canterbury pals said he and may never want a night of malta the toast was pledged with much laughter and in many bumpers the knight upon whom all eyes were turned rose with stately bearing and majestic motion to return thanks i return you an infinitude of thanks brother pals said he glancing around the assemblage and bowing to the president and to you most upright zori for the honour you have done me in associating my name with that city believe me i sincerely appreciate the compliment and echo the sentiment from the bottom of my soul i trust it never will want a night of malta in return for your consideration but a poor one you will say you shall have a ditty which i composed upon the occasion of my pilgrimage to that city and which i have thought proper to name after myself the knight of malta a canterbury tale come list to me and you shall have without a hem or horses a canterbury pilgrimage much better than old chaucer's tis of a hoax i once played off upon that city clever the memory of which i hope will stick to it forever with my coal-black beard and purple cloak jack-boots and broad-brimmed castor hey ho for the knight of malta 
To execute my purpose in the first place you must know, sirs, my locks I let hang down my neck, my beard and whispers grow, sirs. A purple cloak I next clapped on, a sword lagged to my side, sirs, and mounted on a charger black, I to the town did ride, sirs, with my coal-black beard and purple cloak, jack-boots and broad-brimmed caster, hey-ho for the knight of Malta. Two pages were there by my side, upon two little ponies, decked out in scarlet uniform, as spruce as macaronis. Comparisoned my charger was, as grandly as his master, and o'er my long and curly locks I wore a broad-brimmed caster, with my coal-black beard and purple cloak, jack-boots and broad-brimmed caster, hey-ho for the knight of Malta. The people all flocked forth, amazed to see a man so hairy, Oh, I such a sight had ne'er before seen in Canterbury. My flowing robe, my flowing beard, my horse with flowing mane, sirs. They stared, the days of chivalry, they thought, were come again, sirs. With my coal-black beard and purple cloak, jack-boots and broad-brimmed caster, hey-ho for the night of Malta. I told them a long rigmarole romance that did not halter. Jot, that they beheld in me a real knight of Malta, Tom a Becket had I sworn I was, that saint and martyr hallowed. I doubt not just as readily the bait they would have swallowed, with my coal-black beard and purple cloak, jack-boots and broad-brimmed caster. Hey-ho for the night of Malta! I rode about, and speechified, and everybody gullied, the tavern-keepers dibbled, and the magistracy bullied, like puppets were the townsfolk led in that show they called a rarey, the Gotham sages were a joke to those of Canterbury, with my coal-black beard and purple cloak, jack-boots and broad-brimmed caster, hey-ho for the night of Malta! The theatre I next engaged, where I addressed the crowd, sirs, and on retrenchment and reform I spouted long and loud, sirs, on tithes and on taxation I enlarged with skill and zeal, sirs, why so able's a Malta knight, the malt tax to repeal, sirs, with my coal-black beard and purple cloak, jack-boots and broad-brimmed caster, hey-ho for the knight of Malta! As a candidate, I then stepped forth to represent their city, and my non-election to that place was certainly a pity, for surely I the fittest was, and very proper, very, to represent the wisdom and the wit of Canterbury, with my coal-black beard and purple cloak, jack-boots and broad-brimmed caster, hey-ho for the night of Malta! At the trial of some smugglers next, one thing I rather queer did, and the justices upon the bench I literally bearded, for I swore that I some casks did see, though proved as clear as day, sirs, that I happened at the time to be some fifty miles away, sirs, with my coal-black beard and purple cloak, jack-boots and broad-brimmed caster, hey-ho for the night of Malta! This last assertion, I must own, was somewhat of a blunder, and for perjury indicted they compelled me to knock under. To my prosperous career this slight error puts a stop, sir, and thus crossed, the knight of Malta was at length obliged to hop, sirs, with his coal-black beard and purple cloak, jack-boots and broad-brimmed caster. Good-bye to the knight of Malta! The knight sat down amidst the general plaudits of the company. The party, meanwhile, had been increased by the arrival of Luke and the sexton. The former, who was in no mood for revelry, refused to comply with his grandsire's solicitation to enter, and remained sullenly at the door with his arms folded and his eyes fixed upon Turpin, whose movements he commanded through the canvas aperture. 
The sexton walked up to Dick, who was seated at the post of honour, and clapping him upon the shoulder, congratulated him upon the comfortable position in which he found him. "'Aha! Are you there, my old death's head on a mopstick?' said Turpin, with a laugh. "'Ain't we merry bumpers, eh? Keeping it up in style. Sit down, old Noah. Make yourself comfortable. Methuselah. What say you to a drop of as fine nance as you ever tasted in your life, old cove?' "'I have no sort of objection to it,' returned Peter, "'provided you will all pledge my toast.' "'That I will, were it old Ruffin himself,' shouted Turpin. "'Here's to the three-legged mare,' cried Peter, "'to the tree that bears fruit all the year round, "'and yet has neither bark nor branch. "'You won't refuse that toast, Captain Turpin.' "'Not I,' answered Dick. "'I owe the gallows no grudge, if, as Jerry Long says, "'I must have a hearty choke and caper sauce for my breakfast one of these fine mornings. "'It shall never be said that I fell to my meal without appetite, "'or neglected saying grace before it. "'Gentlemen, here's Peter Bradley's toast, the scragging post, "'the three-legged mare with three times three. "'Appropriate as this sentiment was,' It did not appear to be so inviting to the party as might have been anticipated, and the shout soon died away. "'They like not the thoughts of the gallows?' said Turpin to Peter. "'More fools they, a mere bugbear to frighten children, believe me, and never yet alarmed a brave man. The gallows, ah, one can but die once, and what signifies it how, so that it be over quickly? I think no more of the last leap into eternity than clearing a five-barred gate, a rope's end for it.' "'So let us be merry and make most of our time, and that's true philosophy. "'I know you can throw off a rum chant,' added he, turning to Peter. "'I heard you sing last night at the hall. "'Troll as a stave, my antediluvian file, and in the meantime, "'tick me a gauge of fogus, Jerry. "'And if that's a bowl of huckle my butt you are brewing, Sir William,' "'added he, addressing the knight of Malta, "'you may send me a jorum at your convenience.' "'Jerry handed the highwayman a pipe together with a tumbler of the beverage which the knight had prepared, which he pronounced excellent, and while the huge bowl was passed round to the company, a prelude of shawms announced that Peter was ready to break into a song. Accordingly, after the symphony was ended, accompanied at intervals by a single instrument, Peter began his melody, in a key so high that the utmost exertions of the shawm-blower failed to approach its altitudes. The burden of his minstrelsy was— the mandrake the mandrake grows neath the gallows tree and rank and green are its leaves to see green and rank as the grass that waves over the unctuous earth of graves and though all around it lie bleak and bare freely the mandrake flourisheth there maranatha anathema dread is the curse of mandragora euthanasy at the foot of the gibbet the mandrake springs just where the creaking carcass swings. Some have thought it engendered from the fat that drops from the bones of the dead. Some have thought it a human thing, but this is a vain imagining. Maranatha! Anathema! Dread is the curse of Mandragora! Euthanasy! A charnel leaf doth the mandrake wear, a charnel fruit doth the mandrake bear, yet none like the mandrake hath such great power, such virtue resides not in herb or flower, aconite, hemlock, or moonshade I ween, none hath a poison so subtle and keen. Maranatha! Anathema! Dread is the curse of mandragora! Euthanasy! And whether the mandrake be create, 
flesh with the power incorporate i know not yet if from the earth tis rent shrieks and groans from the root are sent shrieks and groans and the sweat like gore oozes and drops from the clammy core maranatha anathema dread is the curse of mandragora euthanasy whoso gathereth the mandrake shall surely die blood for blood is his destiny some who have plucked it have died with groans like to the mandrake's expiring moans some have died raving and some beside with penitent prayers but all have died jesu save us by night and day from the terrible death of mandragora euthanasy a queer chance that's said zoroaster coughing loudly in a token of disapprobation not much to my taste quoth the knight of malta we like something more sprightly in canterbury nor to mine added jerry don't think it's likely to have an encore pon my soul dick you must give us something yourself or we shall never cry euthanasy at the triple tree with all my heart replied turpin you shall have but what do i see my friend sir luke devil take my tongue luke bradley i mean what oh luke nay nay man no shrinking stand forward i've a word or two to say to you we must have a hobnob glass together for old acquaintance sake nay no airs man damn you not a lord yet nor a baronet either though i do hold your title in my pocket never look glum at me it won't pay i'm one of the canting crew now no man shall sneer at me with impunity eh zory <laughs> here's a glass of nance we'll have a bottle of black strap when you are master of your own make ready there you gut scrapers you shawm shavers i'll put your lungs in play for you presently in the meantime charge pals charge a toast a toast health and prosperity to sir luke rookwood i see you are surprised this gemman is sir luke rookwood somewhile luke bradley heir to the house of that name not ten miles distant from this say shall we not drink a bumper to his health astonishment prevailed amongst the crew luke himself had been taken by surprise when turpin discovered him at the door of the tent and summoned him to appear he reluctantly complied with the request but when in half-bantering vein dick began to rally him upon his pretensions he would most gladly have retreated had it been in his power it was then too late he felt he must stand the ordeal every eye was fixed upon him with a look of inquiry zoroaster took his everlasting pipe from his mouth this ain't true surely asked the perplexed magus he has said it replied luke i may not deny it this was sufficient there was a wild hubbub of delight amongst the crew for luke was a favourite with all sir luke rookwood cried jerry juniper who liked a title as much as tommy moore is said to dote upon a lord upon my soul i sincerely congratulate you devilish fortunate fellow always cursed unlucky myself i can never find out my own father unless it were one monsieur de capriole a french dancing master and he never left anything behind him that i could hear of except a broken kilt and a hempen widow sir luke rookwood we shall do ourselves the pleasure of drinking your health and prosperity fresh bumpers and immense cheering silence being in a measure restored zoroaster claimed turpin's promise of a song true true replied dick i have not forgotten it stand to your bows my hearties the game of high toby 
Now Oliver puts his black nightcap on, and every star in glim is hiding, and forth to the heath is the scampsman gone, his matchless cherry-black prancer riding. Merrily over the common he flies, fast and free as the rush of rocket, his crape-covered visard drawn over his eyes, his toll by his side, and his pops in his pocket. Chorus. Then who came a name, so merry a game, as the game of all games, hi Toby! The traveller hears him, away, away, over the wide, wide heath he scurries, he heeds not the thunderbolt, summons to stay, whatever the faster and faster he hurries, but what daisy cutter can match that black tit, he's caught, he must, stand and deliver, then out with the dummy and off with the bit, oh, the game of high Toby forever, chorus. Then who can name so merry a game as the game of all games, high Toby? Believe me, there is not a game, my brave boys, to compare with the game of high Toby. No ratchet can equal the Toby man's joys. To blue devils, blue plums, give the go-by. And what if at length, boys, he comes to the crap? Even rack-punch has some bitter in it. For the mare with three legs, boys, I care not a rap. T'will be over in less than a minute. Grand chorus. Then hip hip hooray, fling care away, hurrah for the game of high Toby. And now, pals, said Dick, who began to feel the influence of these morning cups, I vote that we adjourn. Believe me, I shall always bear in mind that I am a brother of your band, so Luke and I must have a little chat together ere I take my leave. Adieu! And taking Luke by the arm, he walked out of the tent. Peter Bradley rose and followed them. At the door they found the dwarfish grasshopper with Black Bess, rewarding the urchin for his trouble, and slipping the bridle of his mare over his hand, Turpin continued his walk over the green. For a few minutes he seemed to be lost in rumination. "'I tell you what, Sir Luke,' said he, "'I should like to do a generous thing, and make you a present of this bit of paper. But one ought not to throw away one's luck, you know. There is a tide in the affairs of thieves, as the player coves say, which must be taken at the flood, or else... No matter. Your old dad appears, God help him, had the gingerbread. That, I know. He was, as we say, a regular rhinocerical cull. You won't feel a few thousands, especially at starting. And besides, there are two others, Ruston Wilder, who row in this same boat with me, and must therefore come in for their share of the regulars. All this considered, you can't complain. I think, if I ask five thousand for it, that old Harried and Lady Rookwood offered me nearly as much. "'I will not talk to you of fairness,' said Luke. "'I will not say that document belongs of right to me. It fell by accident into your hands. Having possessed yourself of it, I blame you not that you dispose of it to the best advantage. I must perforce agree to your terms.' "'Oh, no,' replied Dick. "'It's quite optional. Lady Rookwood will give as much, and make no mouths about it. So, alas!' What makes best prickeries in that fashion? Ha! Carriage-wheels in the distance. That jade knows the sound as well as I do. I'll just see what it's like. You will have ten minutes for reflection. Who knows if I may not have come in for a good thing here? At that instant, the carriage passed the angle of a rock some three hundred yards distant, and was seen slowly ascending the hillside. Eager as a hawk, after his quarry, Turpin dashed after it. In vain the sexton, whom he nearly overthrew in his career, called after him to halt. He sped like a bolt from the bow. "'May the devil break his neck!' cried Peter, as he saw him dash through the brook. "'Could he not let them alone?' "'This must not be,' said Luke. "'Know you whose carriage it is?' 
"'It is a shrine that holds the jewel that should be dearest in your eyes,' returned Peter. "'Haste, and arrest the spoiler's hand.' "'Whom do you mean?' asked Luke. "'Eleanor Mowbray,' replied Peter. "'She's there, to the rescue. Away!' "'Eleanor Mowbray,' replied Luke. "'And Sybil?' At this instant a pistol-shot was heard. "'Will you let murder be done and upon your cousin?' cried Peter, with a bitter look. "'You are not what I took you for.' Luke answered not, but, swift as the hound and freed from the leash, darted in the direction of the carriage. End of chapter 5, book 3